Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Modern Symposium podcast. I'm your host, Locke, and with me today is a very special guest, Alex from California. How you doing, Alex? I'm good. How's it going? Not too bad. Alex, this disease has been causing a lot of frenzy amongst people. You could tell that people are taking it more seriously with uh, how many masks are popping up all of a sudden. Like, I remember it was just a few people, like scattered that were wearing masks in grocery stores and Costco and stuff like that in the beginning. And now like even before the government started like mandating people wearing them, like it happened almost all at once. Like once the official narrative changed and masks were okay to wear that everyone started wearing them. Like it seems like the CDC and who these are like the most trusted sources among people when things like pandemics happen and they got such uh, a large part of this wrong with telling people not to wear masks. It's, it's, it's up for debate whether their motive was just to save more medical masks for medical personnel or if they truly didn't think that masks work. I, I think that they truly didn't think masks work, but it seems like common sense that they would. So like, what's your interpretation of that? Well, it's interesting. I, I think there's two separate factors at play here. One is the recommendations from the CDC and the WHO. They're coming from a place of, you know, as medical doctors, typically when they recommend something, it, it's not in a common sense way of, oh, we think this may work. But they're recommending it the way that they would recommend, and this is not my original thought, I read it somewhere, but they're recommending masks to the way that you might recommend a medication. And obviously, unless you have clinical trials and a lot of study and maybe even a lot of study with a specific coronavirus, you don't want to recommend something when you don't really have the evidence there. But again, that's that's just coming from a medical standpoint. They have a different standard for evidence. So that's the first factor and I think why they were really hesitant at first. Well, I guess you could say there's three factors. And then second would just be the cultural factor in that America Wearing a mask or covering up your face is kind of like, you're seen as like, oh, are you sick? Or it's sort of like a mysterious, or maybe like there's something dark about the situation. So people really don't like wearing masks in that sense. Whereas in Asia, the cultural connotation is completely different. Where there, somebody wearing a mask, they're seen as polite and thoughtful because they're trying hard to not spread disease to other people, even if it's common cold. And then the third thing, of course, was this whole idea of there weren't enough masks for healthcare workers. So they wanted to make sure that there wasn't a run on the masks. But I had read an interesting post, you probably read it too, from the blog Slate Star Codex, mm-hmm. that if you went back two years, five years, or ten years, the CDC recommendation was always, we don't know if masks work. And there's this whole idea of, Oh, they're saying not to use them because they don't want healthcare workers to not have enough. But if you go back five, ten years, the recommendation has been consistent that there's not enough evidence to suggest they work. Yeah. At least that that was. So yeah, there's a whole bunch of different factors. Um, the cultural, you know, the way that medical professionals view evidence, and then also that idea of saving masks for healthcare workers, but what was your take on the situation and why do you think they were so late to the ballgame on that? I think 
out of the three main problems you outlined, the most significant one was the way they like measure and define evidence that right. you need a clinical double blind um, trial, like in multiple ones with those like significant enough and you know like a big enough population uh, sample size to be able to like declare something as an official recommendation and. I don't know. I think it's too stringent of a kind of policy to realistically follow when you have so little data and so little time to conduct these kind of trials that um, right. you should kind of loosen your standards a little bit. And yeah. yeah, I think it's just like related to kind of governmental bureaucracy organizations in general. Like the FDA takes, I don't know, like 10 years to get a drug um, from the very beginning to the end as like officially approved by the FDA and available to at pharmacies and, and all that. So like the amount of time that it takes to push this stuff through, I think is way too long. Cause there's just, I think it's useless regulation and, and just like a level of, of, of care and sensitivity to absurdity, you know, like I understand why they want to be careful before they like make a recommendation. That's not completely, backed by like a hundred percent hard data and evidence but um yeah. I, I think you do have to adapt to situations like this when it's um time is up so of the essence that um you i guess have to be a little bit more flexible with um because i think even the the treatments that they've been talking about like chloroquine and the other one with the d disaminophere or whatever i think it's showing the value of fast tracking things and and making things more like widely available to be at least volunteers to try it. And my view is, is if like you have terminal cancer and you're like really out of options, like chemo, like it's to such an extreme that chemo is no longer working, but there are experimental drugs available on the market um, that you could try. Like, why wouldn't you want to, if, if you knew you're going to die anyway, like, but like according to like official FDA regulations and stuff like that, you wouldn't be able to. You'd have to like go to a different country and and get like some sketchy doctor to like give you some experimental drugs and stuff like that. Even though you knew like it, they were still in trial phase, you could always get the placebo. Like there's a fifty percent right. chance like it's useless. Like you're willing to take that shot, you know. Like so, I I think people should just be more able to try and ex and uh, with these experimental drugs and things that show promise like i don't know you just gotta weigh the pros and cons of it but people should be like left to make those decisions themselves right i agree and that relates to actually i was listening to a podcast today called this week in uh, virology and they mm -hmm. were talking about it was an immunologist or somebody who works on the development of vaccines and he was saying the uh, measles vaccine of the 1960s and 70s would probably never even get approved today just because of the level of risk associated with that vaccine. Something wow. to do with, um, it's a weakened or deactivated virus, which apparently can be kind of risky because it could reactivate or it could mutate. And then, of course, if you go way back, we're probably all familiar with this idea of, in the Revolutionary War, they started doing variolation or literally just taking pus from people infected with smallpox and then injecting it into somebody else as a weakened form of the virus. Hmm. So all these all these forms of vaccination or treatment are not really, you know, allowed or considered just because the level of risk associated with them is 
is pretty high. But the problem is, if the pandemic is serious enough to warrant a shutdown, right, but not serious enough to warrant experimentation with these vaccines, it doesn't really make sense to me. Yeah. I guess maybe there also is the risk that if you let people try experimental vaccines, they might infect themselves and, you know, become potential new people that could spread the virus and make it even worse. I wanted to ask you about the entire flattening the curve strategy, which is kind of like the hallmark um, standard behind all the policies surrounding coronavirus. Do you, there's like some kind of worry I've heard, um, like, I forget, I think he's like some kind of doctor or scientist at one of the prestigious universities like MIT or something, but I heard him talking about how flattening the curve doesn't really work and that it just kind of prolongs the spread of the virus. It delays it, right. Yeah, it delays it and it it makes it e- even worse in, in the end because it's now like lengthened out and still just as deadly. What do, what do you think? Um, what do you think of that position? Do you think that actually holds merit? I think it does hold merit. There's a certain sense to it because, you know, come September or come even in the second wave, we're already seeing a second wave in Singapore. If you, if you lock down, it blows the spread, but you have all these people who have no immunity, so when you open back up, it spreads again. So I, I see the rationale. The problem is is that in, in these hot spots where the infections were so prevalent, you had an overload of the hospital system. And at first it was really focused around the ventilators, but we don't have enough ventilators. And now we're starting to learn that if you're, if you're put on a ventilator, you have a 90% chance of death anyway. So it's no longer about the ventilators, but it's hard to say that, hey, we should just let this thing run its course when if you go into ER rooms in New York City or in northern Italy or in Wuhan, China, where they found it was necessary to completely to, to weld people into their houses, you know, you have doctors working 20-hour shifts and they have to bring medical staff from other states. And, you know, you have hospitals where almost every floor is occupied by patients. And then I guess, you know, the counter to that is you have hospitals in the rest of the United States, which are nearly empty right now. So for most people in the country, it's sort of like, what's the big deal? But it's clear that if you let the disease run its course, then it'll simply overload the medical system. So so that's why I don't really see that as a realistic option. And I guess the criticism of that is, okay, if you're simply delaying it, what's the difference between overloading the medical system now and overloading it in two or three months or in the, in the fall. And it's true that right now the situation may not be very different, but that's why we're banking on the development of um, antivirals and other drugs that won't cure it, but maybe in, uh, improve your odds a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then also, hope, also hopefully testing will be a little bit better by then. So it's true. It's like we're just taking the problem, which is going to cause the hospitals to be overloaded, and just like in SpongeBob, it's like, and we move it over there. <laughs> we're, just, <laughs> we're just pushing it later. But hopefully by then we'll have a little bit of at least something, you know, whether it's Remdesivir or any of these other treatments. It's like buying us time. 
Right, and that's the thing. It's like if you have a meteor coming towards the Earth, well, I don't know, you have, you have this big problem, and it's like, we don't know what to do. We can't do anything, but at least we can delay it for a little bit, and maybe in that time, you know, some sort of ingenuity would uh, mitigate the problem a little bit later. So, you know, that, that's, how I'd be, that's how I'd be that. What do you think about the concern that social isolation and self-quarantine, it weakens immune systems? Well, I don't, there's a little bit of discussion related to if you're outside, you're getting vitamin D, you know, sunlight, which is protective against the virus, and you're probably getting better exercise. Mm -hmm. But overall, I think that any any transfer of uh, immune health is not really making much of a difference in the face of this virus. So, you know, the trade-off would be you get slightly more sunlight and more vitamin D, you know, but you might catch coronavirus. So it's, it's sort of like the only, the only effective mitigation we have right now is for you to not get it in the first place. So you know, I, I don't really see a, a benefit there. Now, I guess, you know, and this is something I'm not certain about either, but parks, beaches, or streets, should you be allowed to be out in those places? And I'm starting to come around to, yes, just because it's sort of unrealistic to lock people in their houses. Uh, at first I wasn't just because any anytime you let somebody go to the beach, in reality, they're stopping at a public restroom, they're stopping at a gas station, they are going out and about on their way to the beach, or they're going from one city to another city to do that. But I think it's starting to get to the point where people are, people are going to do it anyway. So that's a lesser of two evils, at least. You know, but what's your thought on that? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I think it is kind of unrealistic to expect people to one hundred percent just stay away from public places and yeah. and things like that. And um, that's why I'm kind of skeptical of like proposals of a staggered. Um, staggered end to quarantine and lockdown like where you're letting certain people that are less susceptible to coronavirus out first or um just making like some measures where it's like not all at once but it's in like i just feel like when once you, come, you think that those people who would be told to stay indoors would simply you know ignore it yeah yeah i think it'll be a lot easier too because everyone will be out it's not like cops are going to be like asking for certificates of health, you know, from every individual. So, uh, right. and there will be no way to really, uh, track, you know, whether the healthy people or the sick people are back out onto the public parks and stuff like that, you know? So I just, I don't really see how it's enforceable to just prohibit a certain section of the population. Like it's a lot, it's, it's a hard ordeal keeping, all everyone back but at least it, there's uniformity in it you know like there's not there's no cover to really go out and go to the public beaches and parks i know there are sometimes like florida i think they just reopened their beaches so there are people out and going but um it's like more of a, on the sly kind of thing whereas like like when you allow certain people to go back to the beaches and stuff, it'll be so much easier to disguise yourself as a healthy person, you know? Right. And um, I, th I think the beaches are okay. I think the outdoors are okay. I, I think in the beginning of March, it was less okay because we were in that situation of we need to slow this down by any means necessary. And yeah. um, 
and now I can see that that need is it's not as much as it was before. But you know, another thing this makes me think of is I, I always see pictures of the 1918 flu, and it's kind of, it's kind of interesting that even though we already knew what happened, we're slowly relearning those lessons. One of them was masks. So Americans didn't want to wear masks at first, and then they switched to wearing masks in the 1918 flu before even the virus was really well understood. Another thing I saw was they had outdoor treatment of patients. Uh, they had barbers cutting people's hairs outdoors. And it's just because when you're outside, the wind is carrying those particles away, and the risk of transmission is so much less. But, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. so it, it makes sense to a lot of those things, but yeah. Yeah, I feel like you need to allow a little wiggle room for measures that seem like common sense, but um, don't have the the hard data to back them up always. I think the case in point is uh, parachutes for jumping out of airplanes, you know? Right. You can't really run a double-blind clinical trial whether or not <laughs> parachutes are going to work. You know, there's technically no statistical hard data to back them up. And, uh, you know, it's kind of it's kind of evil in a way that the government would say, hey, you need to stop working, but we're not going to give you the, you know, the, the money to support yourself while you're, while you're at home. Yeah. And it, right. So I can see if you have to make a choice between getting evicted or not putting food on the table that week, you're going to make that risk. You're going to take that risk of a 0.5% or 0.3% chance of death. And I heard it compared to eminent domain, I think is the right term, where if the government needs to build a railway station right where your house is, they're going to pay for your house. They're not just going to demolish it and give you nothing. And it's the same way, the same way if the government needs you to stay home and not work, they should pay you those lost wages. And right now, that's not happening for some people, for some people, for some people, it is like I think if you make less than sixty thousand dollars a year and you were uh, let go, the amount of money that people are making from unemployment right now is a lot more than the median income for a lot, for you know, a lot more than the income for a lot of Americans. But I, I still think it's not enough, and I still think people feel like um, they still have to go out and work. Yeah. Well, a lot of people aren't even haven't even gotten their unemployment checks yet, and which is which is insane. Yeah, yeah, and they're completely relying on the the direct payment, the twelve hundred dollars that they got, and which is which is an insult. Yeah, yeah. There's no way that's gonna hold someone over, like a small like family of three. Like no way, it's just not gonna work. Not only that, but, you know, the average person's rent in New York City and San Francisco is like $2,000 yeah. a month. So, um, obviously, there's that whole eviction pause in, in a lot of locations. But, it, yeah, it, it's not enough. Yeah. No, it's it's crazy. But um, I heard they just put into place a uh, moratorium on evictions. Uh, like, I know that's that's going on right. um, in, in where I'm from in Hawaii, but I'm not sure if that's national, federal, or if that's on a state level, but I think that's another good measure, because, like, you're not, like, then you're just going to have a huge homeless crisis, <laughs> you know, and and that's yeah. going to be, like, a whole other hornet's nest, so. But the, down, the downstream effects are still massive, because if you're a landlord, most likely you don't own that place outright, but you're either still paying a mortgage, or there's still an opportunity cost, so... 
okay, the people who are living there get to stay there, but the landlord suffers, or the person that the landlord pays suffers. So there's always a downstream effect in, in any sort of economic crisis. But I wanted to ask you, in terms of the economic outlook, obviously the stock market crashed. It's gone up like 20% or 25% of the amount that it had crashed before. But what's your overall take on the economic outlook and the economic effect of it in the you know, in the next year, two years, five years? I think that we're going to go through a very painful time this year. Uh, I, I think the we've faced already the most single time, like at a single time, the amount of people that are going to be unemployed. You know, I think there was like, I don't know, six or seven, all that filed all at once. So we're yeah. not going to get numbers like that again because it's, just gonna like be a lot of diminishing returns at this point, but uh, there are a lot of businesses that are just like kind of hanging by a thread that need to be kept in mind. And you know, the the amount of months that this adds up to, where like they can't operate at all, then you're gonna see more and more shuttering. You're gonna just see like it's right. it's gonna be pretty incredible, to be honest. I think. Uh, a lot of people are warning of like great recession kind of levels, and I don't think that's unwarranted. Um, I think though. Do you, you think around? Honestly, I was leaning towards more more than that, but I'm, I'm not sure. But keep going. Yeah. Um, it yeah it could be even uh, worse than I'm actually even uh, letting on. I'm I'm not sure the exact economic impact that it's supposed to have. But I just know yeah. that um, common sense by the numbers, uh, if you think about all the industries and sectors that are completely unavailable, uh, you don't really have to do too much mental math to be able to add up that this is going to be, it's going to have a very lasting effect for years. Um, I feel like we're still going to suffer the aftershocks of this, you know, four or five years down the road. In uh, one way or another, whether it's economic or, you know, cultural or social or, you know, in any those kind of ways, I think this is a very kind of historical event that is going to reverberate throughout the economy and and a lot of volatility. I think um, the stock market is still going to be pretty volatile for a while until things like become the new normal under Corona, and then um, it'll probably once restrictions a lot more restrictions get lifted and things do start truly getting back to normal, then um, the stock market kind of will pick up where it left off. So, um, but as far as the economy, I really don't know, man. I think it, it greatly depends a lot on what world governments are going to do and uh, how seriously they're going to take uh, measures and, also, the data that they have, whether it's going to prove true or not, which I think we're going to find out to greater detail in the coming months, because I think a lot of no, um, just that the seriousness of coronavirus, whether like it's as truly deadly and infectious, and and all these things that are still kind of like up to dispute, because there are official numbers, but there's just like well, let's talk about that. Yeah, you know. Um... The coronavirus as a threat to, to you as an individual, but I guess in general, mm -hmm. I don't want to use the term bullish or bearish, but do you feel like this is sort of an overreaction or do you feel like it's appropriate? 
Yeah, I think my prior is that I was uh, cautiously confident in the official numbers and just all of the initial ideas like social isolation and uh, measures put in place like quarantine and lockdown, I was pretty much game for. And so you were down with that, right? Yeah, yeah. But I think more recently I'm putting more into question the numbers of the WHO and the CDC and the advice that they're giving going forward and just um, cases worldwide, whether I'm just keeping an eye on it, whether like Italy is still continuing to be as bad as it initially was and, and whether China's reflaring back up again. And just like I'm putting things kind of to the mental test, like whether about you could get reinfected, you know, whether herd immunity is still a viable idea or whether or not it's still, I think it's still absolutely unclear. And you could weigh in on this a little bit, whether um, you can have total immunity from it after you get infected. Because I think they had some people in China that got reinfected or something like that. South Korea. Yeah. South Korea. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just, so I'm your, just your questioning. Yeah, I'm just questioning more. I'm like leaning on the side of being conservatively cautious, you know, but um, I'm starting to give more uh, leeway to people that want to like criticize the government about their lockdowns when I'm not sure we should put as much faith and trust into the models, you know, Fauci's giving us because they're not really like falsifiable, you know, like you could say this, how many, this is how many deaths are going to happen if we do nothing. But then you can right. change the number down to 200,000 and say, oh, well, the number's down down to this because we put the, these measures that we told you to put in place. But there's no way to test whether the deaths would have rolled out that way, you know? So it's yeah, like you can't, you can't prove false or true that they're estimates. So it feels to me like this is just a lot of official guesswork. You know, like I'm, I'm not doubting the, the credentials and people that are at these organizations and the time and research that they put into these pandemics and diseases and stuff. I'm just saying, like, they're not gods and they don't they don't know the future. So maybe we should be a little right. bit more critical. Right. You know, I, I guess there's, there's two uh, parts of what you're saying. Um, one is a general uncertainty. And I think, yeah, um, if you speak to an ER doctor in Brooklyn right now, it's kind of hard to say with a straight face, like, this is not a big deal. Because there's reports every single day. The system is stressed to the point of breaking there. So, you know, and that's why a lot of times you see these doctors on social media saying, you guys have to take this more seriously because we're seeing it with our own eyes what this thing is capable of. But then obviously if you are living in Iowa and you're, you're out of a job because of the economic impact, it's hard to say with a straight face to that person that, yeah, you should not be working. But I guess the model is an in- interesting discussion that we could get to. Yeah. Um, when it comes to the models, it, it, it's interesting because, you know, there was a time when, oh, look, they were revising their estimates downward, right? It went from 2.3 million with no mitigation to a lower bound of 100K with, with mitigation. And then that was adjusted down again to 60K. And that seems to be a little optimistic because we're already at 40,000 deaths in the United States. 
So it looks like we're going to easily pass the 50K deaths. I heard something that was a little bit insightful, which is these models are not really like a bet. They're not a prediction in the same way that a weather report is. You know, with a, with a weather report, you say, oh, there's a 60% chance of rain on Monday. But if that doesn't happen, you know, that, 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 that's part of it. You know, the difference with this prediction is as more information comes in, it's gonna, the models are going to continually change. So I think, I think that's, that's part of the models themselves, that if the number of new infections goes down, then the predicted deaths are going to go down too because the model is constantly adjusting to new variables. But I, I was never really mad or angry about these predictions being off, either too high or too low, and that's simply because there's so much uncertainty right now about this disease. Yeah. So um, yeah. I wanted to get your opinion on the whole criticism that we're padding the numbers and that we're stating that there are yeah. more deaths than uh, there really are. Uh, I know a lot of people are citing the uh, CDC's guidelines on diagnosing whether a death comes from COVID. All you have to do is have COVID in your system when you die and you're officially counted towards the official death toll. But a lot of people are complaining about that fact because things such as pneumonia deaths, the normal graph of what it's projected to be suddenly uh, plummets because uh, a lot of people that would have been uh, classified as dying from pneumonia are mistakenly being classified as dying from COVID. So um, do you think there is any truth in certain official aspects of the numbers that are being reported in that there are over overestimations of COVID deaths? You know, I think there's some truth to that, but I think it goes both ways. You know, for example, if you look at the all-cause mortality in northern Italy and in New York City, the mortality is way higher than one would predict just from diagnosed COVID death. And I guess, so, so clearly, a large amount of people are dying who are never diagnosed or not even diagnosed after the fact. So in my opinion... Um, that uncertainty with the data goes both ways, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's important. I think um, in a lot of ways, the the uh, overestimated deaths in certain areas because of mistaken diagnosis are offset by uh, deaths that haven't been reported at all because they just don't have the, the resources to count everything and uh, well, test, I mean, let's, and let's test talk, everyone. Let's talk about what happens, whether you're in New York City or in Hawaii or in Northern California, where I'm right now. If you call the ER and say, hey, I'm having trouble breathing. I have a fever of 102. Um, you know, I have aches and pains. And I have all, I have all the symptoms of coronavirus. They're going to ask you a few questions. They're going to say, like, what's your age? And do you have any uh, other conditions? And if you, if you say you're young and you have no other conditions, they're going to tell you to stay home, and they're not going to test you. And um, even though I don't think it's happening a lot, you know, people are staying home, and then they're dying at home of the virus. And the proof of that is simply in the excess mortality, right? Like so far, 0.15% of the population of New York City is dead. It's more people that are dying of heart attacks, and it's more people that are dying of cancer. And you can, you can argue, okay, maybe some of those aren't truly coronavirus deaths, but you, you can't argue with 
the number of dead people, right? Like, way more people are dying now than they did at this time last year, even though the common cold and the flu has almost been completely defeated this year by the lockdown, so. Yeah. I know there's a lot of uncertainty, but I'm not super sympathetic to this whole, oh, all these people being taken out of hospitals in, you know, in meat trucks. You know, that's just, that's just regular deaths that are being um, misdiagnosed. But again, you know, I err on the side of just saying there's a lot of uncertainty. We're, we're in this, I read, we're in this fog of data right now, and it's super hard to see exactly what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And uh, I think overall there are still more deaths from COVID than are being reported. Um, I understand um, why people would criticize the classification methods. And, you know, like, why are you tr- and saying, why are you trusting the CDC to count deaths when um, they couldn't even get telling us whether to wear masks right or not? You know, like, there's valid criticisms to, to everything, but... There's just so little uh, information and data that we have that um, sometimes you just got to make certain assumptions and uh, just hope that they're right. But uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, a more uh, scientific aspect of the whole issue, which is that uh, a lot of viruses like this, uh, a lot of coronaviruses are found in bats and bats themselves are... Uh, very responsible for passing viruses onto humans throughout human history. Right. So, um, do you have insight and any insight into this? Why you think so many um, uh, infections are coming from these animals, and what, like, what does that have to do with there are certain species that they're so susceptible to do that? Yeah. So again, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a medical researcher. This is just stuff I'm gleaned. I've gleaned from the internet or the news, but yeah, it's super interesting with bats. Apparently, um, they're small flying mammals with a super high basal body temperature. So as a result, if they, if they can withstand these infections and have no symptoms, you know, so they're just naturally very good hosts for all sorts of viruses. I think another thing is that the way that they, um, live together in these large sort of like flocks in caves or in other structures where uh, they're, they're so close to each other, they're so packed together. And yeah, so they just have a higher natural tolerance for these viruses. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that's all the insight that I have towards that question, but I think it's super interesting. Yeah, I think it's important to know, and I learned this when I read up just recently about it, that there are over 1,250 bat species, which yeah. <laughs> which is more than cows, sheep, horses, pigs, deer, beer, bears, dogs, seals, cats, foxes, weasels, chimpanzees, yeah. monkeys, hares, and rabbits all, all combined. Um, I read that too. And what also surprised me is just seeing how ugly some of them are. They look like... They look like they have an axe of cancer on their face. Yeah. They look like some of them. Yeah, they're horrifying. I, the ones I've seen in person before, you know, they're almost kind of cute. They're big, but not all of them, apparently. That's probably the ugly ones are probably where the virus comes from. Have you ever had a bat in your house or your garage or anything? Oh, yeah, at my house. It was like, um, especially uh, during certain seasons, we would have maybe five or six bats a year. 
which was crazy. Yeah, those things are so scary. <laughs> We've had to deal with the one before. It was on our, yeah, it was on our front porch, and we had to like someone had to get a broom and just smack it out of <laughs> out of the roof of our little front porch area. See, I don't know. I feel like it's like you're either afraid of spiders, uh, snakes, or bats. I was never really afraid of bats, but. <laughs> It's definitely crazy the way they fly in your house. is so erratic. They're like, yeah. I think the fact though that they're nocturnal too kind of adds to their like creepiness, you know, because they only come out at night where you can't see anything. Yeah, and, yeah plus yeah. they transform into vampires. Yep. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Like, I it makes me think the whole vampire thing that like these stories that have and myths that have developed throughout history. Uh, like are in reality just kind of like guides to um, like public oh, health. Sort of like an evolved fear. Yeah, like the whole um, vampirism idea, like maybe it came about because like people just wanted other people to stay away from bats because they knew they were like full of diseases and stuff. Or maybe like whatever the specific association between bats and vampires because of... Like, right, because if you're a person who... You know, you see no problem with bats, and maybe you catch them and eat them. Maybe you're so much more likely to have gotten disease that, right, we have an evolved fear. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's really cool. It's really interesting. I think um, the theories about, like, how it's been transmitted from uh, from bat to humans, uh, they're, they're, like, pretty wide-ranging. Like, some are pretty similar, too, and there's just subtle differences. But... Um, I think I still believe that it came from a wet market, but I don't like am a hundred percent. I'm not a hundred percent sure about the official narrative of it just coming from the wild and it got put in the wet market and then it spread to other people. Um, but I, I'm still not giving enough credence to conspiracy theories about them artificially making it and leaking it either purposely or accidentally like yeah it's possible but i feel like there's still there still needs more of that evidence that links the things instead of just is more circumstantial and it's like well this person was at this place and these people know each other and they're both a part of this organization you know that's what i feel like a lot of the theories are basing their arguments around just a so like evidence by association so right. what do you th- what do you think is the most plausible alternative explanation for how this all started? So yeah, I mean, you and I and some of our friends discussed this in the group chat earlier today, but for me I lean towards it came from nature. That it came from a, a bat and maybe it went to another species or maybe it started in another species and went to a bat or whatever. I think that's the most plausible simply because Every two years, every five years, every ten years, this happens on a reoccurring basis. So if this has been happening where a virus comes from nature on a continual basis every five years or so, right? Um, Did it come from a lab lab or not, you know? Now, the only disclaimer is that I'm not fully read up on. I know the Washington Post and also Fox News released these big stories where they came out and they were like, okay, even though we made fun of these guys before, now we admit that it's kind of a real... (laughs) we're sorry (laughs) (laughs) Um, and yeah I I think it's a real possibility some of the interesting things are 
apparently that virology lab in Wuhan is like two blocks away from the wet market where cases were first found. So, okay, that's the first thing. And then the second thing is um, multiple members of the research team have been, quote-unquote, disappeared by the Chinese government. Um, so, yeah, there's a whole bunch of mystery regarding that. But, but just as well, I could see um, if the virus started in that local market and the institute is right there, you know, maybe some scientists were seeing what was going on, you know, and trying to uh, report on it. What and uh, what's the word? Uh, whistleblow on the whole thing. And that was still when the local government in Wuhan was trying to keep the whole thing under locks. So, I mean, so far, I haven't really seen any concrete evidence, and I know we probably will never see it because of the Chinese government. But um, all this stuff is very circumstantial. And I could easily see a situation where some of the scientists at that lab were aware of a local breakout, tried to study and tried to report on it, and then were disappeared as a result. But yeah, that's one of those things we'll never know. But I don't know. It's interesting. I was listening to the National Review podcast, uh, magazine, and they were estimating the chance that it came from the lab as 40%, 60%. For me, I, I say more like... Um, I don't know, 5% or less, simply because, again, this happens all the time, continually, throughout history, whether it's the Black Plague or what, whether it's all these, um, the Asian flu of 1957, um, SARS-1, you know, it, it happens so often that you don't need necessarily to make up an elaborate conspiracy theory, but... But yeah, uh, what do you estimate is like the overall chances of that? It's funny. I was thinking about this uh, the past couple days as like, a, like describing it as a metaphor, like for a horse race with all these theories are being different horses with different odds, you know, and, yeah. and it's not an issue of whether you could definitively prove that your theory is right or not, because we just don't have enough information to be able to do that kind of things, those things. So it's a probability it becomes a probability game. You know, there's the underdog dark horse 20 to one. Um, it was engineered in China and then it was leaked into a wet market. And then there's the, the 10 to one that it was accidentally created in the Wuhan lab and leaked into the wet market. And then you got your, your like four to one shot that it just naturally came from a bat that had coronavirus and ended up in a wet market. And that's so, yeah, I think if you're trying to convince someone that it's any particular uh, theory, it's more important to keep in mind that you, you like, there will always be that leeway of doubt that you're going to have about whether or not um, this aspect of your theory is true, can be verified, you know, whether this, um, these dots that you're connecting really hold up. So all you could do is just try to convince people that your horse isn't 20 to 1 odds. It should be more like 8 to 1 odds because I've got all of these um, bits of evidence that point to mine being more likely than yours. You know, So I think yeah. it's a more helpful way to think about it and, and not have the attitude that you're definitely right and they're definitely wrong because when it comes to this, there's just um, no counting things out, you know? Right. I mean, I think one thing we do know, not for certain, for certain, but pretty close to for certain, 
is that it was not engineered on purpose. So it could have been, uh, you know, a bat flu that was taken from nature and then was being studied. I think that's very possible. Okay. From what I've seen, all the scientists are like, this could not have been engineered simply due to the structure of the virus, due to the fact that this virus exists in nature, in bats. Yeah. And it exists in um, pangolins or you know at least yeah, that, yeah. Is very close, that is very close to those things so yeah the whole weather was engineered I basically think it's not really possible and again it comes down to like bio engineering stuff that I don't really understand but there's easier ways to create a, a virulent virus if you wanted to yeah and um, and frankly our scientists are not good enough to do that right now you know yeah. Um, nature, is so much, nature is so much better through natural selection at, cre- at creating a virus. And it does it all the time. Yeah. It does it all the time. So, yeah. I read there were similar coronaviruses and other pangolins that had 96% of the same DNA as the COVID-2. So, yeah. it, all the signs point to it being a modified, if, if it was artificially created, a modified version of something that already existed, then them making a, a pandemic from scratch, you know, a virus that could do that from scratch. It just wouldn't make yeah. any sense. It would just be so much more difficult. And yeah, like you said, I don't think we have the technology to be even to even do that in the first place. Um, I'd be surprised if China would be able to do that before us. Maybe we could do it now and we're just holding on to it and we're better at like keeping shit down. But I don't know. Yeah, I think, um, I I don't know. There's a part of me though that, can't help but like just reframe it when you say definitely count out making it from scratch then why don't you just increase the odds you know why don't you just make it a million to one shot you know that it's that theory because oh yeah sure no no that's exactly what i'm saying it's, yeah it's still a possibility in that sense of the word um yeah so i mean i agree with that but you could say i i think the release from the lab is unlikely and then engineered in a lab is extremely unlikely. So yeah. it sounds like you, you basically agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, like there's like a gradient of likelihood. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk to about um, the political issue how, that's kind of arisen over this and how it's pretty right. obvious that like this has become a partisan issue. Like it seems at least more and more pronounced every day that Democrats have a certain attitude of falling by the policies and Republicans have a different one, uh, which by the dichotomy that are, you know, the nation's always controlled by these two parties. Wh- which one do you think is a little bit closer to the truth of, of how we should be reacting to the coronavirus? Uh, well, it's a tough question. Um, I think it was interesting in March. The situation was so new that neither side, neither political side had a fake opposition yet. And kind of like as time has gone up, like, because at first, maybe Trump was a racist for saying that the flu even existed. So being super against the flu was a conservative position. But that was so early in the beginning, and now it's sort of shifted to the virus is not a big deal if you're a conservative, or we should, you know, release the lockdown if you're a conservative. I, I tend to think the virus is a very big deal and that we should continue the lockdown. At least, it, well, no, I think point period blank, we should be continuing the lockdown. 
So I, I would lean towards that, what has become the liberal or the left-leaning position. But it, it's, it's one... I don't really think there's anything necessarily about either side that is inherently conservative or inherently liberal, right? Um, it's, it, it's maybe more that liberals are living in coastal cities and conservatives are living in places where the virus is not a real problem. So, of course, they want to get out of the lockdown. But I guess I lean slightly where the Democrats are at right now in that I think it's a big deal. I think we should continue the lockdown. You know, I think we should... Tr- yeah, I don't know. That, that's how I feel about that. But how do you feel about that? Yeah, I think uh, you see certain aspects of the issue being interpreted through um, characteristics that are common to certain political parties, like distrust of government, which is more typically a Republican sentiment, uh, is being right. is being shown by criticizing the government lockdowns. And stressing um, the economic aspect of it and uh, business owners, you know, kind of revolting against what they see are um, actions taken by the government that kind of tramples all over the Constitution, you know. And and I would say liberals are more trusting of institutions and governments, and they're more uh, prone to believe the mainstream um, narrative of both the media and just the government in general. So they're more willing to comply. I don't have like solid numbers saying like um, this is this many percent of Republicans obey the policies and the directives of the government during Corona, the coronavirus and this percentage of Democrats, you know, like I can't say statistically that there's a, a partisan difference between them obeying the laws, but it just seems like more, concern and questioning is coming out of Fox News and conservative pundits saying, um, yeah, we get how awful it is, this virus, like what it does to people, and that's like a tragic thing for it to kill people, but come on, man, this is the flu, you know, we could get over this, like think of all the people that are going to die from forcing them to stay at home and uh, robbing them of a means uh, to provide for themselves, you know, money for food and shelter and all these things. So right. it, it seems like um, there is a kind of a political divide that uh, people that are eager to get back to work and just like stress the economic uh, end of it, they're more critical of um, these government actions and and just the official policies that are being put forward. Yeah. You know, I guess my difficulty with thinking about it in political political terms is that, you know, as you know, I lean libertarian. I think in general, a small government and a more state-based response, normally I would lean in that direction. But then if you look at what's happened in the past two months, right, um, they're not being enough masks, the government not taking it seriously until mid-late March, um, are... You know, the, the SDA's inability to ramp up testing and block testing. So this has been a state failure. And it seems like in, in almost every Western country, they kind of messed up their response. So I really think it does you know, I don't need to say hey, the conservatives are right here, the liberals are wrong here. So, so yeah. yeah. But I see what you're saying, definitely in terms of, you know, trust the state government. And, 
and don't give too much power to the central government. That makes sense from a conservative position. But the problem is I think an effective conservative government would have responded more quickly. Or, you know, for some reason we're the richest country in the world, but we have not been able to ramp up testing and um, the supply of PPE. So I'm really just disappointed with both sides and disappointed with government in general. Yeah. But, so, you know, you know, another example, if you're... If you support a small government, but you're at war, and I know this is not exactly like that, but if you have war, pandemic, sometimes the, the government needs to take response. And I'm okay with different states taking a different level of response. But what I'm not okay with is, you know, it doesn't have to come from the top down. It can come from the governors down. But if the governors are deciding not to take it seriously, I think that's a mistake. So, yeah. Yeah, and with something like a pandemic, it's, uh, it's easy to stress, you know, individual rights and liberties during like a regular normal peacetime. But when, um, you're suffering under a pandemic, um, you kind of have to have a large coordinated response towards something or else it kind of renders your decisions kind of meaningless, you know, whether or not you take the coronavirus seriously uh, whatever policies you put into place would be meaningless if all the other states just decided not to do anything, you know, because then there's no way you could hold back the spread of infection and everything. So um, there does have to be kind of some kind of mass social coordination on certain problems that I don't think the market is the best equipped to address. So um, and that's coming. Well, there's, there's the argument that in this case, the market was prevented from working effectively. You know, like, you can't charge $20 for a mask. And as a result, the supply and the movement of PPE is completely hindered. Yeah. You know, uh, in mid-early March, there was actually a startup in San Francisco offering coronavirus tests online. And the FDA shut it down. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously, so... It's just been a massive government failure. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's like they're restricting the market in the mo ways that could help the most, and then they're not restricting it in the ways that could help the least. It's like a, exactly. it's a mishandling by the government completely. Because, yeah, I think a lot of tests could have been more uh, generated and uh, spread out among the population. Um, and that kind of reminds me of a point that I wanted to touch on, too, which is testing. Now, it seems like a large part of the problem of the uncertainty of the data is a result of a lack of testing. I think we're at, what, 2 or 3% of the total population has been tested, or maybe even less. I think that, that was like South Korea's benchmark, and I was measuring it against that. But I also heard that kind of the, the efficacy of t mass testing is kind of like improbable because um, it, you just require so many resources and like so much uh coordination and also the fact that like tests kind of become useless after a certain amount of days because of the chance of infection from again. yeah right. when, when you got it or like say you you took the test you know you're clean and then the next day you get coronavirus but you know people looking at the yeah. results that next day wouldn't know that because you know you're not included so like isn't mass testing on a scale that would be ideal kind of impossible yeah, that argument kind of makes sense. I, I will definitely say that testing would have been more valuable in mid-February. You know, the earlier, the smaller the size of the outbreak, the more valuable testing is. Um, 
Right, and now it's everywhere. It's in every community. You know, it's near you. <laughs> it's coming to a town near you. So testing is less useful now, but it's still useful. I- I'm not sympathetic to the idea that testing is impossible on a logistic basis. I mean, every time you go to the doctors, if you want to, you can get an array of 30 tests, you know, every single time. And, um, if, you know, uh, so you would just have to scale, you, you should be able to scale that up. You know, the math is really not that big. Like, how many people in this country, 350 million? How many times would you need to test them all, maybe once a month? I mean, yeah, it's big numbers, but it's not impossible considering I can go to the doctors any of the day of the week and get an array of 30 or more tests. So it's not like the, the country is incapable of producing those resources. But could, they, were literally, they were literally hindered and prevented from doing that. But couldn't you argue that it would, it would cause a system shock? Like, yeah, on like regular individual basis, you could get all these tests, but if all these people all at once tried to get a test, wouldn't, that, wouldn't there not be enough tests to go around at first? Yeah, um, it's definitely, it, it would definitely be hard. It would be a logistical challenge. Um, but it would be doable the same way that in 1941 you would say, how would you go from a country that produces no planes and no ships to a country that produced 500,000 ships and planes in six months or whatever? Um, right, it would be hard. It would be a concerted effort, but I definitely, there's, there's nothing inherent about testing that would be impossible if it wasn't for some of these problems with, you know, the FDA and the CDC and uh, definitely hard to ramp up, but, but possible, I think, you know? Yeah. So what are your predictions for the the rest of the year, at least? I'm, I'm wondering if businesses, once they do end the lockdown and allow people to go to restaurants and stuff, I'm not sure that things are just going to open up and be back to normal immediately that there probably still will be some time where um, restaurants and movie theaters still want people to sit apart more or some businesses will still wait a little bit longer before they open, even though that might seem implausible considering they've just gone without income for so long. But I don't know, maybe they're being carried by a small business loan that doesn't necessitate they open right away. Do you think there will be kind of a measured and uh, kind of staggered uh, return to normality, or do you think businesses will act like business as usual immediately? Um, I don't think that everything's going back to normal immediately. But what I do foresee is a so-called second wave. So, you know, I think people, especially in states that haven't been hit hard, they're going to go back to, they're going to try to go back to the regular lives and they're going to suffer immensely for it. And at which point people are going to rethink the situation. So I, there's no easy answer. I think it's extremely hard to predict right now. But the virus is here. The virus is not going anywhere. We have no treatment. And this is not like in March 1st where there was maybe like three or four big outbreaks in the country. The virus is literally everywhere. So what I do think is going to happen is there's going to be a staggered opening and then a retreat back to safety. The same way that doctor, if you had listened to Dr. Fauci saying he was, we may go through these stages and then we may go backwards in those stages. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen. In terms of exact predictions, it's too hard to predict and I can't tell you that. 
but I think there's no reason why um, the virus would hit certain areas so hard, and then in two months, it's, the virus is just going to decide not to hit other areas. Uh, that doesn't make sense to me. So, yeah, I think it's going to get way worse before it gets better. And I think there's going to be some cultural changes in the next year or two in terms of how people interact with each other. And social distancing is the new normal. So that's my prediction. Yeah. Do you think uh, there will be like a pretty large divide over which states kind of open everything back up compared to states which kind of take a way more uh, measured and delayed response to things? Like I, I could see, for instance, maybe a lot of southern states opening immediately and uh, northern states kind of taking their time a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, I could see that clearly in places like New York and New Jersey. It's going to be a very slow road to recovery. And I'm not saying this is going to be everywhere. I'm not saying in two or three months, wave two, is going to be every single city where, where they opened up the lockdown is going to become new, a new New York. But I do think it's extremely likely in two or three months there will be another New York City situation, and whether that's in the South, uh, in Texas, Florida, Alabama, Louisiana, or anywhere else in the country, but I truly think nowhere is safe. So I, I guess to make my prediction more exact, I don't think everywhere in the country will be hit the way that New York City is, but I will think you will see more outbreaks of that size. Do you think this is a seasonal issue, that it'll be less... Uh, of a viral load in the summer with raised temperatures, or I've heard as well that it's it won't get hot enough to actually make a, a physical difference. It's got to get like something like 150 Celsius before it would actually be able to kill virus, um, bacteria, and stuff. Yeah, I think again, there's a lot of uncertainty around that. My prediction is that the, the nice weather does lower the R not a little bit. But the reason you see it make such a big difference with the cold, with, with the common cold and with the flu, is that there's a certain base level of immunity in the population. Right now, almost no one is immune. So even though, the, let's say, the R not goes down slightly from the nice weather, but then opening up the lockdown will increase the R not way more than whatever effect the weather is going to have. So yeah, generally, I don't think the weather is going to be our saving grace here. It may, it may lower it slightly. But it's not it's not like the common cold, you know, it's not like the flu in terms of in terms of that. Yeah. Okay. So like can you talk a little bit more about how uh, it's affected you on a, a personal level and kinda has like made you look at things a little bit differently ever since this all kind of started? Um Yeah, so I mentioned it in the beginning. Uh, I don't remember if that was the part that was recorded or not. But for me personally, this has not been bad at all. Just because I've just been chilling at home, playing video games. This life is... Well, I will say there's a certain level of anxiety and fear. I think that's affected me. I think that's affected everyone. But I've sort of, I've sort of like adjusted to the new normal and become okay with it. Like I have a routine for myself. It's pretty fun. You know, and I'm also just grateful that I still have a job. I'm still getting paid. Right now, my work schedule is is adjusted so that I, I don't really have to go to work, but I'm still getting paid. So, to be frank, right now, it's kind of awesome for me. So, yeah. But what about for you? Yeah, I I definitely tell a difference, though. Like, when, when you go outside, you there's definitely a feeling that 
there should be more cars on the road and there should be more people on the sidewalks. And I definitely could tell that. That's like kind of spooky. Yeah, it does have like a ghost town kind of feeling sometimes. Other times, though, it's crazy that how normal like life feels because there'll be a lot of people at the beach and just cars whizzing by and like you wouldn't even be able to tell that anything was even happening. Like maybe, yeah, you'll see a mask uh, every now and then more often. But um, yeah, it's it's kind of like night and day. It's funny, like with my job, I and luckily I'm still employed as well. I get to travel um, the island a lot and go to different areas. And like sometimes I'll be in, a, in the middle of a city or like a suburb or whatever in between. So it's kind of interesting kind of taking note to see how people are acting differently. Another thing I notice is when I'm walking down the sidewalk, people will usually like go out of their way to be like within about six or seven feet away to, um, for me when they pass me on the sidewalk. Like they'll be walking the sidewalk and then they'll like stop walking on the sidewalk. They'll like get in the grass next to it. And I do that every single time. <laughs> yeah, so it's funny like it's even and like the older the person is, the farther away they'll get too. And, <laughs> and like sometimes they'll go out in the street. <laughs> so yeah, it's not far off. Like people. Shouldn't you be the one who's like being polite and you getting out of the way, but you make the little old lady walk into the oncoming traffic to avoid you? Yeah, I'm sure that's actually happened like multiple times, and I didn't even realize it because they just get that far away. And like, you just laugh internally and then keep walking? Yep. Yeah, I hear, like, something that sounds like a beep and, you know, <laughs> screeching tires, but you just can't be sure. You know, it could be, like, some very uh, loud animal. <laughs> yeah. I think that since our last episode, when we first started analyzing this issue, some things have kind of come into focus a little bit more, and... Other things kind of have either dropped off out of focus and are still unclear. So I'm uh, I'm very curious how things are going to move forward in May. I think things are kind of going to stay the same relatively this month. But as soon as May hits... Well, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt, but yeah. do you have any um, verifiable predictions that we can just to see if they're right or wrong? Verifiable like, predictions. I like think... For, exa- for, for example... Um, the stock market, do you think it's going to be higher or lower? Yeah, that's exactly where I was going to go. Mm -hmm. Right, and then also um, the number of deaths in your estimation. Um, You know, I know that's really hard, neither of us are like epidemiologists. And then, yeah, any like verifiable predictions? So, I'm going to say that the stock market steadily rises for the rest of the month. There will be some red days, but um, I feel like a bull rally is going to last until May 1st. And then I honestly have no idea whether it's going to plunge or stay on course or what. I think it'll depend on um, whether or not the government delays things even further than May 1st. If they don't, then what the state response will be like. And I think the days leading up to May 1st will kind of give you a clearer indicator of how it's going to go, but I don't know. I feel like the, uh, the Ides of May are upon us and we will for sure know whether or not the correction's going to come because the correction's coming. Definitely. Like there's no way we could keep this momentum. I think forever with how just economically devastated we're going to be. So 
whether it happens in the May, beginning of May, end of May, you know, or it takes a little bit longer, maybe summer, for things to... Um, and um, do you think there's going to be a second wave? And do you think the second wave is going to be as bad or worse or not as bad as this first wave? Yeah, that one's really hard to predict. Um, like a verifiable claim, I will say that there will be a second wave this year. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll make it even more specific. I'll say that it'll happen before November. So we could we could see if that co- comes about, and we could see how the stock market does in May. So as far as other verifiable predictions, I think that... I don't think that the government's... Because they're saying May 1st is when everything's going to get lifted, yeah? Stages according to Trump. Yeah. It's gonna be it's gonna be staggered. Oh, so yeah, that's right. He's kind of putting it into the governor's hands. Um, I yeah. think May first. Yeah, it's not gonna be extended. I think states uh, are gonna start staggering their um, the shutdown policies. I think California and New York are already on May fifteenth, so they already extended theirs. I don't think they're gonna extend theirs again, but I think. Yeah, that'll be prime time for a spike in cases. Would would you consider like if it happened in May for it to be a second wave or would it need to be like more distant time to happen? I, I think that it could be simply because um the rate of increase of new infections everywhere in the United States is going down right now. Yeah. All it would take is if we see an uptake, you know, like a strong trend in some locations in mid to late May, I would, I would consider that the second wave, even though I think most people when they talk about second wave are thinking more about like September and November, you know, in the fall. But I think this virus is uh, virulent enough that the easing of lockdowns that's occurring right now could result in an uptick in two to three weeks from now. I mean, I'm not saying that's likely, but I think that's a possibility. And yeah, I would consider that a second wave. Okay. Yeah, I think a second wave is likely. I think we'll experience that. Um, probably more likely the sooner than later. And as far as deaths, I predict 70,000 deaths by July, which I think it's going to, that's kind of <laughs> safe. Just, like, rent? Did you just yell at that? I just yoloed it. I'm totally, okay. totally yoloing the numbers, but you gotta pick a number or else you're a coward. Cause only um, cowards say I don't know. <laughs> I'm saying six million deaths by. Um... I meant American deaths, like globally I deaths. I know, me too. American deaths six million by April twenty first. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a safe bet. Things about the things about to get bad. All right, man. Well, it was good talking to you. Yeah, yeah, buddy. And I'll have you on again soon. Thanks for um, thanks for talking with us today. Yeah, of course it was fun. All right. Have a good one.